Genesis chapter 22 this morning, and we'll start. Um, my cousin, my cousin, um, has she has um, the tumors that they took out had three different cancers in them between the two. They said that the aggressive scale on on a scale of one to ten is a seven. Um, they they uh, she's pregnant, um, and they can't really start treatment until they figure out what they're going to do. And so what they're going to do is wait eight weeks, which would bring the baby to um, 30 weeks, and then they're going to C-section, deliver the baby, and then she'll start treatment. They're telling her that with treatment, they can guarantee her a year, and then after that, um, it goes significantly downward. So um, the, 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 the human prognosis is not good, but they are um, they're born again. They are solid in the faith. They're they're handling this in a very inspirational way. Uh, they're being great witnesses for the Lord through it. Uh, both her and her husband, who's going to be, you know, I mean, he's going to have six kids on his hand, and um, they're doing great. So pray for them. Her name is Kim. His name is Phil. Um, her name is Kim. And his name is Phil, and uh, just pray for them that God can still do great things. You know, my prayer has been, uh, Lord, you, you know, these things are hard. You know, how do you, like, you're, you're, you don't ever miss anything. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't, you know, like something doesn't happen, and he goes, oh, how did that happen? You know, so, so I pray, and I say, Lord, you know, you're not a show-off. You're not one to, you know, you don't give people diseases just so you can heal them. Usually you have a purpose in what you're doing, you know. So my prayer has been, Lord, if there's any way that you can fulfill your purpose and spare her life, then that's what we're asking for you to do, you know, so... Uh, we know he's got a purpose and a reason, you know, why he's allowing this. So um, that's our prayer. So uh, his will be done. But yeah. Um, all right. So Genesis 22, verse 1. It says, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt or test or try Abraham and said unto him, Abraham. And he said, Behold, here I am. So where we left off uh, at the end of chapter 21, Abraham had uh, left Hebron where God really had led him. And he's now in the very south of the land on the border of Egypt in, a, in an area that's called Beersheba, which um, really is the southernmost point. You'll read throughout the Bible when it talks about Israel, it, it references it as being from Dan, which was in the far north, to Beersheba, which was in the far south. That, that makes up the northern to southernmost points. So that's where Abraham is really living at this time. And we've seen that he's, um, you know, maybe outside of the will of God in terms of where exactly he is. Uh, God didn't lead him to leave Hebron, but now he's in Beersheba. And it tells us at the very end of the last chapter that he sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. Uh, so, you know, he stayed there for quite some time. He will eventually go back to Hebron. We'll see him there later on. But for now, he's been there for a long time. Now, by the time we get to chapter 23, so skipping the chapter that we're in this morning, we're going to see that Isaac, the child that's now been given to Abraham, is 37 years old. So what that means is that um, between chap the end of chapter 21 and the, at the beginning of chapter 23, 
probably about 37 years has passed or, or somewhere in that range. It's quite a span of time uh, that happens just between a chapter. And so um, we, we don't know exactly how many years since Isaac was born that uh, the thing, the events in this chapter take place. But most people believe that Isaac, uh, the promised son at this time, is about 30 years old. So, so, so quite a few years have passed now, um, it, really in, in, in most silence. And now we see and it says that God has come, come back to him. And it tells us here at the very beginning that it says at this time, this point in Abram's life, walking with God about 50 years now, it says that there's a test, uh, a trial that comes uh, to Abraham. Now, um, before we look at the test and the trial uh, and what it is, it's important for us to understand that when God uh, allows or when God sends a test into our lives or a trial into our lives, it's never uh, in order that he might see what's going on inside of us. Uh, the Bible teaches us that God is omniscient. It's just a big word that means that he knows all things. Uh, and that's not limited to the things that haven't happened yet. He knows even the things that are yet future. There's nothing hidden from him. He sees, the Bible says, right into our hearts as though they're naked and open before him. He sees things about ourselves that we don't even see about ourselves or know about ourselves. So the purpose of a trial is never so that he can see what's in us or what we're going to do as though he wants to just test it. It's always Listen, for the purpose of revealing what's inside. It's not so he can see it, it's so that it can then be revealed. If you think for a moment about someone who maybe is a great engineer, one who designs uh, complex machines or systems, um, and, and they really think it through, and they take it through a planning phase and, and concept and design and then experiment, and, and they do all these things designing. And then finally the day comes now when there's going to be a trial run. Uh, and so they bring in all of their colleagues and uh, supervisors, overseers, investors. Everybody comes to this uh, trial run to see if how this great prototype is going to uh, uh, perform in the whole thing. The engineer, the one who made the machine and designed it, doesn't come to that trial for the sake of seeing if it's going to work. You know, he stands confidently knowing what the machine's going to do because he's thought it through. He's done his homework. He's, he's, he's done it. The purpose is to reveal to everyone else the impressiveness of the system or of the machine. It's so that they might see what, it, what this thing ultimately can do. And I don't think there's ever been a greater engineer, there isn't, of course, than God. <laughs> you know, the one who not only, you know, made life and made us, uh, but the one who works in our lives to bring forth uh, what it is that he's seeking to bring forth within our lives. And here now, he's been working with Abraham for 50 years, 50 years from the time that he first called him. And for 50 years, he's been cultivating something within his heart and taking away the things that don't belong there and putting in the things that do belong there. And now 50 years into Abram learning to walk by faith and learning to trust and learning uh, to sacrifice and learning to see God's provision and, and learning that, 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 he, that he's safe in the hand of God. Now, this time, the greatest trial or test of Abraham's life comes. Not for the sake of God seeing if he'll obey, but rather to demonstrate and show what he has performed in Abraham's life. And it's a testimony to us, not only of the work that God did in Abraham, 
but it also teaches us where God is ultimately bringing us, what it is that he's going to bring forth within our lives. And then secondarily, it also reveals the purpose of any trial. And why does God uh, lay things or bring things into our lives that, that, that bring us to the very edge of our uh, sanity, you know, to think of the difficulty of them? And, and when we see what God showed Abram and taught him and added to him through this time of testing, uh, it, it becomes to us a thing where we say, Lord, whatever it costs, it's worth it. Whatever you have to do within my life to bring me there. And so the test now comes uh, to Abraham. It's also um, noteworthy before we look at it um, that, that, that in that Abram has been walking with the Lord for 50 years, it serves us to, to recognize that he's prepared for this. God never sends a trial or a test or something into our life that he hasn't first prepared us to handle. The Bible's very clear that he does not give to us more than he knows that we can handle. If he gives us a trial or a test or allows a temptation to come our way, then, then be sure that if that trial and temptation is in your life, then you have what it takes, because otherwise God wouldn't have done it. He's not irresponsible uh, um, or reckless in the way that he raises his kids. And so here comes the trial in verse 2, and I'm sure it's the last thing that Abram wanted to hear on this day. And it says, he said unto him, take now thy son. Thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering. So he's telling him to sacrifice his son upon one of the mountains that I will tell thee of. Now, this verse, uh, just a few words and a few seconds in reading it, is actually full uh, of all kinds of, uh, of information in there. First of all, he, he, he tells Abram to take his son, and he calls him his only son, which is kind of interesting, isn't it? Because if you've been following with us in our uh, um, trek through Abraham's life, we know that this is not his only son, that Abraham has a son whose name is Ishmael that was birthed by the handmaid that was from Egypt. But it's interesting to me that God doesn't even recognize Ishmael as a legitimate son of Abram in this passage. He calls Isaac his only son. And let it serve for us as a reminder that God doesn't recognize our efforts to try to help him bring about his plan within our lives. Sometimes we think that we can help God help us. And sometimes we hear people say, God helps those that help themselves. You know, that's not in the Bible, <laughs> and it's probably one of the most unbiblical things that you'll ever uh, hear or consider. The, the, the whole premise of the gospel is that we can't help ourselves, that we're in a position where in and of ourselves we can do nothing, and it isn't until we recognize that that God steps in and says, okay, now we can do something here. You know, and so uh, he says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, and then he, he, he qualifies the relationship by saying, whom thou lovest. First time in the Bible that the word love is used. So we've made it through 22 chapters of, of, uh, of, of, of scripture. We've gone over 2,000 years of time in those 22 chapters and never once is the defining characteristic of God mentioned in the Bible until here. And it's in the context of a father's love for his only son. 
There's a principle in 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 um, studying the Bible that's called the law of first mention, and it's and what that means is that when the first time that something is mentioned in the Bible, it sets the premise or the context for what that. Uh, concept means all the way throughout the Bible. And so as we see love now being used for the very first time, it gives to us not just, you know, a a, a word that we can attach our emotions to, but it gives us the context in which real love exists. And so God defines love for the first time as the love that a father has for his only begotten son. The only son. So he says, take your son, who you love, and then he tells him where to go. He says, and I want you to leave your place in Beersheba, and I want you to go to the land of Moriah. Now, where is Moriah? It's only mentioned uh, one other time in the Bible. And where Moriah is, uh, it's a place up in what would later become the territory of Judah, and the land ultimately came into the possession of a man whose name was Aruna. And um, when David became the king of Israel and David uh, sinned in populating the people, which was he wasn't supposed to do that. And and the the result of it is that a plague came upon it. um, David needed to make an offering to God. He needed to sacrifice to God, needed a place to do it. And so he, he needed some land and a place to build an altar, and he found that the best place for him to buy was this threshing floor that was owned by this man, Aruna, in the land of Moriah. And so David goes to Aruna, and he says, hey, I need to buy some land. I need to build an altar. And Aruna said, here, I want you to just take it, have it as a gift. You're the king. And David said, no, no, no. He says, I cannot give to the Lord that which cost me nothing. What's the price? And Rune tells him the price. David buys that land, makes an offering there, and the plague is subsided when, when David makes that offering. Well, that land that David bought from Aruna was then passed down to Solomon, who built the temple in that place. So the temple, what ultimately became the temple, was built on that land right there. And what God is basically saying to Abram here is he says, I want you to go to the land of Moriah, which is where the temple will ultimately be built. And once you get there, I want you to offer your only son as a burnt offering upon, and here's the last component in this verse, one of the mountains, which I will tell you of. Meaning that there is a hill or a mountain. The mountains in that land are actually hills by the context of anything else. But he says, there's a hill in the vicinity of there, and I want to tell you about it. That's what God is saying to Abraham here. If you have a King James, it gets it right here. No other version says says it the right way. Notice what it says. If you're not reading the King James, listen again as I read the end of this verse. He says... Offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of or tell you about. He doesn't say that I will show you or point out to you when you get there. In other words, what God is saying to Abraham, and this is paramount, listen. He's saying, go to this mountain because I want to tell you about this mountain. I've got a message for you and I want you to get it. So go to the land of Moriah, and I'm going to show you a mountain there, and I'm going to tell you about that mountain. So the command is clear. Take your son, whom you love, go to Moriah, I'll show you the mountain, 
and you're going to offer your only son upon that mountain. That's the command that Abraham has given. Now, Abraham has a choice, doesn't he? (laughs) Because at this point, he can evaluate what he has just heard clearly from God, and he can decide whether or not he wants to obey or whether or not he wants to resist. Now, we know the the depth and the level of love that Abraham had for Isaac because we know how long he waited to obtain him. It was 25 years, and it troubled him. We saw that all the way throughout, that he didn't have a son. Now he has the son, and now God is putting his finger on the one thing in Abraham's life that means more to him than anything else that he has, and he's saying, I want you to offer it up and give it to me there. I sat um, a couple of weeks ago with uh, a woman in the counseling office who is going through uh, a trial that is among one of the heaviest uh, of of the things that I've had to deal with. And um, I don't know this woman particularly well, but it came out over the course of our conversation um, that, that she she has been resisting God in her life for quite some time, you know, just not, not in a place where she's willing to trust him. She believes in him, but not willing to really trust him. Uh, and the reason that she's not willing to trust him is because uh, she has a fear that if she gives her life completely over into the hand of God, that he's going to make her give up everything or he's going to take everything away from her and that she'll, she'll be left with absolutely nothing. So that's a real fear. You know, that's something that, that, that people can have. And, and what I was able to say to, to this woman is, listen, when, when we give God the control, control of our lives, he doesn't take that control so that he can empty it out. He doesn't take the, the, the bucket full, full of whatever it is that's in our lives and just say, okay, now this is mine, so let me, let me just trash it and throw it on the ground and stomp it. What he does is, is, is he says, what I want you to do is I just want you to yield the ownership of what's in this bucket to me and then watch what I do with it. And then what he does with it is that he takes those things and he puts them in their proper place so that he can expand it and do more with it and better with it than what we could ever do ourselves. That's his way. And our best position as his people is that he would have complete control over the contents of our life. That's what it means to surrender. So at this point, Abraham has the choice. Are you going to yield the contents to me, no matter what the outcome might be, or will you think foolishly that you can do better with it yourself? And Abraham wisely, took him 50 years, but wisely says, God, if that's what you want, then that's what's best. So look what happens in verse 3. So Abraham rose up early in the morning. That's immediate obedience. He didn't contemplate. He didn't wait. Hey, this is difficult. You know why? Sometimes compulsive sacrifice is a lot easier than calculated sacrifice, isn't it? You know, if someone's standing right in front of you and they need a thousand bucks, and you have this impulse to help the person, and you just, you just feel it, like, I need to help this person, I can do it, it's a sacrifice, but here, you give them a thousand bucks, it's impulsive, it's quick, you gave it up, you didn't really have time to think about it. But now he's got to think about this thing. Wait, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer my son. i got to travel with him for three days. I've got to bring wood with me. I, you know, I mean, this is a tough thing that he's got to do here, but he does it. It says that he saddled his ass, and he took two of his young men with him, and Isaac, his son, and he claved the wood for the burnt offering, and he rose up and he went into the place which God had told him. 
So think, well, what was that like? And put yourself in Abraham's shoes for a minute. Here he's going and he's grabbing some firewood and he goes and gets his, his, his axe. And, and as he's splitting that wood that he's going to take with him, he's, he's picturing in his mind what he's going to do with it. I mean, think about it. I'm going to burn my son on the wood that I'm cutting. I'm, I have to cut the wood right now that I'm going to light on fire and sacrifice. He has to go through all of these emotions in this thing uh, and the whole thing. So it says there in verse 4, it says, Then on the third day, you might want to circle that. Anytime you see something that sparks a, sparks a, a, you know, a thought to other scriptures, you might just consider why. It says that Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place afar off. And so as he comes, he sees And it says that Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here, stay with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship. First time the word worship is used in the Bible. And it's used in the context of an offering, something being given to God that is very difficult to give to God, but done out of obedience and faith. But he says, I and the lad will go yonder and come again to you. Now that's very interesting, isn't it? Because what he tells these young men that he's leaving behind at the bottom of the hill is he's saying that me and the boy are going to go and me and the boy are going to return. Which is interesting, isn't it? Because what he's been told is that he's going to offer his son as a sacrifice. But he speaks forth here that me and the boy will return. Now, In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, which is the Hall of Faith, where it just talks about all these Old Testament characters and their faith, it tells us very clearly in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abraham was so sure that God was going to keep his promise that Isaac would live, that even if it meant that God was going to raise him from the dead again, that God would do that, that Abraham was sure of that. And we see that faith demonstrated right here, don't we? He said, we'll be back. As difficult as this is, as, as hard as it will be to go through this, we'll return. That's it. Verse 6. It says, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son. So Isaac now has to carry the wood up the hill that he's ultimately going to be laid upon. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife And they went both of them together. And Isaac spoke unto Abraham his father. (laughs) So see the wheels turning in the head of this young man at this point. And he says, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire in your hand and the wood in my backpack. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? I mean, typically, dad, if we're going to offer sacrifice. I mean, isn't there a sacrifice? I mean, that's kind of the whole point, right? I mean, the fire and the wood, that's, you know, consequent. But where's the lamp? Where's the substance of of this offering? Notice Abram's response in verse 8. And it says that Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb. You might want to circle that. Those are very significant, important words. (laughs) Very significant and important words in the whole context of the Bible. God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. And notice that word provide. It's going to come up again in a little bit. 
And it says that they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there. And he laid the wood in order. Again, how difficult would that be? And then it says that he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Now, uh, Isaac at this point, not a little child anymore. He was weaned, um, he was weaned in, in the last chapter. Many days have passed since then. He'll be 37 at the beginning of the next chapter. He's somewhere uh, between the ages of 5 and 37 at this point. Certainly able to resist if he wanted to. Strong enough to carry the wood up the hill and make this journey on his own. So not just a little kid like we might picture, but someone with a will. And here he yields his will, trusting in the love that his father has for him, that his father knows what he's doing. How, how, how hard it is for Abram, think about how hard this is for Isaac, for Abram to look at him in the face and say, son, I know you don't understand this, but lay down. And for the son to trust his father enough that he does it. And so he's now tied um, to this, bound, it says he bound Isaac, his son, laid him on the altar upon the wood, and Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son, and we're out of time, so we'll finish next week. <laughs> we'll be back right after these messages. It says, And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And he said, lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld thy son, thine only son from me. And we'll see the purpose for that uh, in just a moment. But he stops him at this point from doing it, seeing the faith and the obedience of him, God never, ever, 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 from Genesis to Revelation, or ever will he, in all of existence, call for or condone human sacrifice. It is not his way. He does not do that, and he will not contradict himself. It was never his intent that Abraham would go through with this thing. This has a purpose. There's a reason why God is having him do this, and it has nothing to do with human sacrifice. And so notice what God does now instead. Verse 13, it says, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. Now, a ram is a male sheep that still has his testicles. That's what a ram is. So you have a male sheep here, that's fully complete with a crown of thorns. His horns caught in the thorns. And Abraham turns and he sees this male sheep with his head caught in the thorns. And it says that Abraham went and took the ram and offered him for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And so an innocent substitute and it says that Abraham then, after this whole thing is completed, it's done now. The offering has been made. Abraham has fulfilled the call that God has asked of him through this trial. And as he considers the entire event from start to finish, it says that Abraham's response to it is that he called the name of that place 
Jehovah Jireh. It means, Jehovah means the Lord. Jireh means provide. So it means the Lord will provide it. So Abram looks at the whole thing. He gets the message that God was seeking to convey to him through the whole event. And he calls the place, the Lord will provide it. That's the name of this land. The Lord will provide it. And then he says, as it is said to this day, and this is paramount, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. Do you see that word shall? The word shall means future, doesn't it? In other words, at the very beginning, when God said, take him to Moriah, to one of the mountains that I will tell you about, I've got a message for you about this mountain. Abram goes through, he rehearses this ritual, this thing. And then at the end of it all, he says, this is what will be seen in this place in the future. What is it that's going to be seen in this place? So what's the summation of all that we saw happen within this trial? Listen carefully. First of all, we see a father taking his only begotten son, whom he loves, to Mount Moriah, which is the hill nearest to the threshing floor of Aruna, where the temple would be built. We see the father preparing wood for an act of worship, then laying the wood on his son to carry it up the hill himself. Then we see the father binding the son to the wood and the son himself being in submission to that binding. And then we see him spared, of course, because God won't contradict, but we see a ram, a male sheep, perfect, with a crown of thorns, sacrificed instead, and then the declaration made that in this mountain, it shall be seen in the future. So what's the summation and the interpretation of this whole thing? What's the message that God is giving to Abram 50 years into his walk with him? God was telling and showing Abraham what he was going to do for him in his son, Jesus. That's the picture and the message that Abraham is being given thousand years, at least, before it would take place in actuality. And so what's the um, concluding application as we kind of look at this and now um, try to untie what it is that God uh, not just said to Abraham, but what he wants to say to us? First of all, um, it's this, is that the end goal of every trial and test that we face, at least in God's mind, is that he might in some way reveal Jesus Christ to us. Because that's what God did for Abraham in this trial, is that he revealed Christ to him. The outward perception that Abraham had is that God was trying to take something from him. Maybe Abraham didn't have that perception, but we might as we read it, you know. That God was wanting to hurt him in some way or, uh, uh, you know, just do something that, that was cruel or wicked or, 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 or out, outside of the boundaries of acceptable. But in reality, what God was doing is that he was revealing, imparting to Abraham and communing with him concerning the deepest things of God he was giving to him. And the truth for you and I is that no matter what it is that we go through in our lives, no matter what God puts his finger on within our lives, no matter what the trial is that we face, God is only good and his purpose is only good within our lives. 
And ultimately, whatever he does and allows within our lives, he is doing it in some way so that we might know him in a fuller and richer way. I think of the Apostle Paul in this, and he talks about all of the things that happened to him once he came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior. And he does it in Philippians 3, and he begins by saying everything that he had within his life, all his credentials, all the blessings, all of the, uh, the privilege that was his because of who he was and uh, his heritage and all, and all the rest. And he gives a, quite a list that would be very impressive to any uh, Jew in, in those days. And then he talks about how every single one of those things that were precious to him were taken away. He lost them all. And he says this concerning that. He says, but even though I've lost everything, he says, I consider everything I lost as dung or as rubbish. And here's why. He says, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. If by any means I might be conformed into his image and that I might attain that for which I've been called. And God has called every one of us. He calls every person. It's not every person that responds to that call, but he calls us and he's called us to know him and to experience him and to understand him, not in our mind, but in the deepest place of who we are, to know God. And anything that God brings into our life that causes us pain on the outside ultimately serves the greater purpose underneath that of bringing us into a fuller and richer experience with him. And when we come into that experience and we know him for who he is, we look at what it cost us to have that and we say, it's done. So even the most precious things in our lives that we would say, God, don't put your hand on that. On the other side of losing it, if the result is that we know him more, we will always say, God, it was way more than worth it that that should be laid down upon the altar for your sake. That's his will for our lives, that we would know him and that we would know his love. The end goal of the entirety of life is that we might know God for who he truly is. And true maturity in the Christian life and in this faith happens when God goes from being a what he gives to who he is. In other words, we go through a stage of our Christian development when God is all about, what are you going to give me? God, what do, I, what do I get for following you? Peace, joy, forgiveness, a clean conscience, blessings materially and otherwise, a good home, healthy kids. You know, th these are things that God does for us. And they can so often be our motive, our reason. Well, I'm following God because I need these things within my life. But maturity happens when there's a transition that happens, when no longer is it about what he gives, but it's about who he is. For you and I this morning, is God an end in and of himself? Or is God a means to some other end that we're pursuing? God, I'm following you because, or is it God, I'm following you because of who you are? And ultimately, Maturity and true life is experienced when we come to that place where we know him for who he is and the greatest treasure of all of life is him. The name that God gave for himself to Moses is I am. Who do I tell them your name is, God? And he said, my name is I am. And that's what God is for us. He's the I am. He's not the I will give. <laughs> 
He's the I am. And it's all about him. And so that's what the true uh, purpose of life is all about. And Abraham was at that place where he understood that, that, that if, it, if it's a choice between the thing that is the most precious to me and God himself, I must choose God himself. There is no other choice within my life. I believe that if you were to summarize the test, I mean, we all have taken tests within our lives before. Um, you know, and you know, and typically we think of sitting down at a desk and someone gives us a piece of paper and there's questions on the paper and we have to answer them a certain way. If we were to take this test that God sent to Abraham here and we were to in some way translate it into a piece of paper and a question on the paper, I believe that the question on that test, one question test, real simple, doesn't take long, but it costs a lot. The one question on that test would be Abraham do you love me as much as I love you? Because this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to go through all of what it would take to take my only son whom I love and then cleave the wood and prepare an offering and then bind him to a life of humanity leaving the glories of heaven. And then my son is going to carry that wood that's prepared by me for your sake And he's going to carry it up a hill. He's going to be bound to it there. And there's not going to be a ram caught in the thicket. He is the ram with the crown of thorns. And he's going to be offered for you there. The just for the unjust. The innocent in place of the guilty. And I'm going to slay my son upon an altar of wood on Mount Calvary in the land of Moriah to put away every one of your sins. And I'm going to do that, Abraham, because of my love for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And Abraham, are you willing to let me bring you into a place where you love me as much as I love you? Will you lay down, would you lay down your son as I have laid down mine? And in this text, what we gain as we look at Abraham's life is we see a picture of where God desires to bring every one of us to the place where there is such a communion and such a fellowship and such an experience and such a reality between us and God that there is nothing greater in all of life. We receive his best for what it is and we give to him ours, as cheap as that might seem, because it's valuable to him. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the testimony that this chapter gives to us about about what worship is and what love is and who you are and what this life is that you've called us into. And it's such a precious picture for us, such an incredible witness of of the reality of God and of redemption and of Jesus. So, Lord, we're asking this morning that you would open up our eyes just a little bit more to see you for who you are. That, Father, you would bring us deeper in our walk with you into a place where it's not about what you'll do for us, but who you are to us. And we thank you, Lord, for the love that you demonstrated in sending your Son, that while we were yet your enemies, you died for us. So may our lives somehow come to a place where they're worthy of the price that you paid to redeem us. We know that's impossible, but it's our desire. And Lord, would you take us there? 
So may we walk in the steps of Abram. And may you prosper in your work in our lives. So we ask these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.